Thank you. Good morning and welcome to Bethany West Seattle. My name is Jonathan Welch and you may not recognize me if you're a regular attender here. Prentice is on vacation so he asked me to fill in. And if you're new, I'm new too. So welcome. We're glad to have you. And if there's anyone else in the room, I'm curious, has anyone else been in Seattle for less than a year? Okay, a few of us. So I moved to Seattle last August, almost a year. I don't know why I looked at my watch to check the date. I moved to Seattle almost a year ago this week. And so I'm a pastoral resident up over at our Bethany Green Lake location. And so that kind of means I've been a part of a training and development program for pastors for the past year over at Green Lake. And so every now and again, I get to do fun, exciting things like this and leave the Green Lake area and go on a field trip and see one of our many locations that Bethany has. Over the past year, I've been able to work with our college students and all our small groups, and it's been absolutely fantastic. Before moving up to Seattle, I'm a native Southern Californian, and so I decided I really wanted to learn and study the Seattle culture. So I did what I thought anybody who wanted to be a good student in Seattle would do, and I binged on Netflix 11 seasons of Frasier. After about season four, I should have given up, but I'm a completist, and I had to finish it. And it honestly didn't teach me a whole lot about Seattle. Um, I guess they drink coffee a bit, but other than that, it is nothing like Frasier. So don't, don't watch 11 seasons of Frasier. Just don't do it. At this point, I'll pray for us, and we'll get started in our, in our talk today. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity to come and gather this morning and for what you're doing in our community and our church. So bless this time. In your name we pray. Amen. So when I was going to college as an undergrad at Cal State Fullerton, I was working a security job on campus in our student union. And so one night at the event I was working, it was, it was calm, it was peaceful, it was chill. I began to do a countdown until I would be able to eat pizza at the center. And it was going to be a good night when I got off of work. But that's when maybe the unthinkable began to start happening while I was at work. This boring, normal, tame event began to get really exciting, and I was not prepared for it. I was told there was a fight breaking, breaking out in our atrium. When I got there, I discovered there were two people yelling at each other, and punches were about ready to be thrown. Someone was going to get hurt if I didn't act fast, but the last thing in the world I wanted to do was step into the middle of this fight. And so I had not a lot of time to figure out what was going on, and I knew I was only going to get one shot at making the right choice. So as calmly and loudly and with as much courage as I could muster in the moment, I told them I needed them to vacate the building, and if they would not calm down, I would have to call the police. Sounds like the right thing to do. And they began to exit the building. So I began to put my cell phone away. I took a deep breath and let out a sigh. All was going to be fine. But as luck would have it, the moment they stepped outside the building, punches were thrown. A fight had broken out, and I discovered they had pulled out weapons, knives, and a bunch of other things along with those. And so I had to call my boss, put the building on lockdown. I almost didn't discern well enough because I almost hesitated in that moment of what to do. The fight had almost broken out with me in the middle of it. And as I think about where the church is today, I think that we are in this kind of moment where we cannot hesitate. We are in a moment that is exciting, where the stakes of all we say or do are incredibly, incredibly high. And so as followers of Jesus, we must discern in the midst of the season what we are supposed to do. How are we supposed to live as Christ followers? What we do when everyone around us is disagreeing about something or everything matters. The stakes we are in right now are high. The world is watching. How are we going to respond? 
How are we going to live in the midst of it? Following Jesus demands discernment. And we must learn to walk in conviction, love, and truth. So today, as we continue our series on summer shorts, I was really hoping I could rock some shorts and rainbow sandals on stage, but that did not quite happen in our series of summer shorts. We'll find ourselves in the books of 2nd and 3rd John. But before we get into that, we kind of need to explore the book of 1st John a bit. And so this is just a note of context for you if you, if you care about that sort of thing. The first, the three letters of John are a little bit different. First John kind of feels like a normal letter written by Paul. So Ephesians, Philippians, Corinthians, things along those lines. It's longer, it's written to a particular place in a particular time. But as we step into second and third John, they are super short. They are literally only one chapter. And half of each book is literally taken up by John introducing himself, saying hello to the person he's writing it to, and then concluding and saying goodbye pretty much. And so these letters, what you notice is they are super, super personal. They are not written to a large group of people, but kind of one-on-one. And so I'm just curious, in here, when was the last time any one of us wrote a letter? Who was it to? And maybe even why did you write a letter? And so if you're kind of tracking with me and wondering what a letter is, a letter is like a really long tweet, but only for one person, or a direct Snapchat without a picture. Um, Maybe that'll make a little bit more sense as we look at it. And so as we dig into the letters today, Just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. These are different than the letters we're used to reading in the New Testament. And so we'll start in 1 John. Following Jesus demands discernment, and we must learn to walk in conviction. And so we'll pick up 1 John 1, 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness... We lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And if the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word has no place in our lives. What do you believe in? Where do you find your convictions lie? Are there certain aspects of following Jesus that are harder for you than others? Honestly, I myself am a byproduct of the Western world, and so I love to engage God with my mind, and I love to learn, I love to study. I also love to serve, so I love getting my hands dirty and doing tangible things. But some of the parts of following Jesus that are harder for me even though I don't want them to be, are some of the experiential. If I can't explain something, sometimes I often explain it away. And so do we believe those five verses in 1 John? Are we willing, are you willing to confess your sins and let the work of Jesus on the cross take away your sin? Are we willing to admit that we need help? I know this isn't necessarily a popular thing to admit in our neck of the woods. And we could talk about a lot of things and a lot of aspects of walking in conviction, but I honestly believe it starts here, right here with the work of Jesus. This is and must be our core conviction. And Bethany has a phrase, if you've been ever to Green Lake in the foyer, there's a phrase hanging up above one of the, one of the hallways. And so maybe you've seen it. It says, in essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and all things charity. And there's also a phrase that I love to repeat over and over again and tell myself and tell other people, and it's this. I long to major on the majors and minor on the minors of our faith. See, 
There's a lot of things I could get bogged down on into arguments or certain theological debates, and I don't want to do that. If you've grown up in the church, maybe you have some of those floating in the back of your mind right now. Maybe Calvinism versus Arminianism. What's the deal with predestination? And then maybe where did the dinosaurs go? My conviction is to focus on the person and work of Jesus. Because after all, that's who I'm following. That's who we're all following and responding to is Jesus. And we're going to take a look in Matthew 4 at Jesus first calling the disciples. So if you have a Bible, you can flip to Matthew 4.18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father and followed him. Did you notice anything at all in Jesus calling the first disciples? Did you catch that checklist of belief before they got out of the boat to follow Jesus? Did you notice that Jesus asked them what political party they supported in Rome? Or did you even see that Jesus asked and quizzed them on the latest social justice causes happening around them? Of course not. Jesus simply said three little words that are actually incredibly difficult. Come, follow me. Come, follow me. And so I wonder, what would you do if I came up to you while you were sitting at your desk, designing code at Amazon perhaps, and I told you to come follow me? Would you fling your keyboard across the office and immediately follow me out into South Lake, South Lake Union? My ego and my extrovert certainly hope you would. But my type eight, the challenger on the Enneagram, would absolutely question you if you decided to make that choice. But these first disciples did just that. They dropped their nets, they got out of the boat, and they left their families. They responded absolutely to the call of Jesus. And they lived in light of this conviction. And sometimes there were bumps along the road, and we, and I especially, tend to have a habit of giving the disciple Peter a pretty hard time when we talk about his adventure of following Jesus left for us in the scriptures. And classically, there's several incidents we tend to zero in on when he, when he screws up. And one of those that we typically isolate is when Jesus asks him, or when he asks Jesus to let him walk on the water, which I think is just gutsy and awesome. But then we have the habit of beginning to make fun of him when he starts to sink. And the funny thing is, Peter actually got out of the boat. Peter actually walked on water. His conviction to be like Jesus, to walk on water, led him to getting out of the boat. He actually walked on water, even if he happened to sink. His conviction led to action. And I'm pretty confident that Peter has walked on more water than I will ever dream of. Following Jesus isn't always rosy. It's not always smooth. Sometimes we even happen to sink in the water. Decisions like leaving our family or jobs behind may, make sense to, may not make sense to anyone else. Feeling called to do the impossible, to start that business, or maybe even serve that specific people group, may feel like getting out of the boat and walking on water. You may even wind up getting mocked for those decisions. And so, like I mentioned earlier, I'm from Southern California. And so every now and again, when I see pictures of California sunsets over the ocean, I get homesick and wonder every now and again if my move to Seattle was truly worth it. 
especially when plans don't always work out the way you think they're going to. Admitting you need Jesus and all Jesus did for you may make your coworkers around you think you're weak. But Jesus warns, of the, warns us of this in John chapter 15. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Following Jesus demands discernment as we learn to walk in conviction. We must not lose sight of Jesus' work and moving in our life. We must hold fast and remember Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the completion until the day of Christ Jesus. As we do this, we can begin to walk in the complete vision of John. Walking in the conviction of Jesus and his work cannot be done unless we live in the reality of this conviction, without action, without walking in love. And so he says again in 1 John 4, starting in verse 19, we love because he, because Jesus, first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, who he has seen, cannot love God. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Following Jesus demands discernment in learning to walk in conviction and compel us to walk in love. And so this is where we'll pick up 2 John 6, where our scripture reading was for the day. So like I said, 2 John only has one chapter, so 2 John verse 6. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. This is pretty simple, right? Let's just pray. Then we can go home and love people, or go to the party on Vashon Island. Love everyone always. The end, clear cut, case closed. If only it was that simple. Our trouble with walking in love is that we tend to create a Jesus in our image, a Jesus that we want to follow. We love people, sure, but only if they fit the image of Jesus we've created and whom we think he'd love. We love if they fit our preconceived notion of who's worthy of love. And we pick this up in verse 7 of Second John. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. No matter who we are, we tend to create a Jesus in our own image. And it's the struggle of all of church history. It's the struggle of all followers of Jesus, no matter how enlightened we become. No one is immune. We can even look to pop culture. And so there's a movie which I do not endorse. For the record, I don't endorse it. It's called Dogma. And in this movie, they portray the Catholic Church wanting to become a bit more relevant and a bit more hip to the next generation. So they turn the classic crucifix into Buddy Christ, who is smiling at you and giving you a thumbs up. Maybe you even remember Ashton Kutcher in his t-shirt that was Jesus is my homeboy. Elsewhere in pop culture, you can actually buy a bank that says Jesus saves. You can even buy a Jesus rubber duck or a coffee mug that says Jesus saves. But when you pour hot liquid into it, it turns into a beardless Jesus and it says Jesus shaves. And there's even a Jesus action figure with walking on water action. 
I may own all of these for the record. While these examples may be extreme, we literally are constantly recreating Jesus in our own image. But I think for us, me included, we happen to be a bit more sophisticated in our recreation of Jesus. We can do it subtly in art by turning Jesus into a white, middle-class American. We culturally tend to construct Jesus into the image of our own politics. If I'm a Republican, then Jesus has to be a Republican. If I'm a Democrat, then of course Jesus is. If I drive a Prius, then Jesus must have the greatest Prius ever. He becomes a Jesus in our own image. A Jesus like us, a Jesus like you, a Jesus like me. That means he's a Seahawks fan, he prefers camping, and maybe he even watches Game of Thrones. We believe in Jesus, but we try to mold him into our own image, an image that fits our lifestyle, our perspective, to make us comfortable. We want Jesus, but we also want to do our own thing and have Jesus bless it. I do it too. And so just a few weeks ago, I was at a dinner with a couple of friends of mine, catching up about life and just talking over Red Robin. Somehow we proceeded to start talking about language and swearing and kind of everything that goes into that whole conversation. And truthfully, I don't swear often, but as we started sharing our perspective on the topic and language and how we as followers of Jesus should associate with it, I realized that while I may not swear, I certainly do consume a lot of that language between movies, television, and music. I found myself justifying it making Jesus into my own image because the language fit the context of what I was watching, like the swearing in Apollo 13 when they're stuck in a spaceship in outer space. This isn't a one-size-fits-all, though. And my friends challenged my perception and convicted me to rethink my own thoughts on it. And in the process, though, we were talking, they were challenged as well. We both left encouraged and critiqued. And I think that's what the gospel of Jesus does. It critiques every side of a polarized culture. As followers of Jesus, we are called absolutely to walk in love. And we are called to love those whom we think are unlovable. In John 4, Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman at the well. And perhaps if you've grown up in church, you've heard this story before. She was a woman who, for multiple reasons, the disciples thought Jesus should have nothing at all to do with. She was a woman of questionable moral status. And she was of a different people, ethnicity, race, the one that a good Jew in the first century had absolutely nothing to do with. Yet, as we see in the story, Jesus took the time at the well and went out of his way to be with her and to love her in the moment he was with her. In Joshua 2, in the Old Testament, we encounter Rahab the prostitute, who turned out, despite the name, to be a great, great, great grandmother of Jesus. And Rahab took these two spies of Israel who were sent to go spy on the land, uh, the city of Jericho, and she took them into her house to protect them as an outsider, and she wound up loving them and kept them from harm. In return, these two spies in God loved her and spared this outsider, despite how unchurchy she was. In Luke 10... Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. This title of this parable alone would have been scandalous to his Jewish audience. How dare you call a Samaritan good? That's not even possible. But in the parable, it's not the religious leaders that Jesus talks about who love the injured man that is left to die. Nope. It's the Good Samaritan. 
is the person who in their eyes, in their culture, was absolutely the least lovable person they could think of. It was the least expected. Today, maybe for us, it's the good homeless person begging out on the street corner. Maybe it's even the good terrorist. Maybe it's the good Hillary supporter, or the good Trump supporter, or the good LGBTQA activist, or the good gang member, or the good white supremacist. For me, it was my grandfather. He was a drunk, an alcoholic, and a compulsive gambler. He was a man with whom still to this day it is absolutely hard and almost impossible for me to see anything good in his life. It's the good fill in the blank for you. Maybe it's the good ex, maybe it's even the good boss. Who is that person that if you were to find out were to become a follower of Jesus, you wouldn't believe it no matter what they told you? Maybe you'd even secretly resent, resent them for becoming a follower of Jesus. You'd not want to engage with them because how could Jesus let them into the family too? Doesn't he know who they are? And this is not a hypothetical. It actually happens all the time, and it even happened to the first followers of Jesus. There once was a man named Saul who was infamous in his persecution of the church, and he absolutely hated the first followers of Jesus. His life goal was to see the movement, the movement of Jesus terminated before it even began. But then somehow, some way, something unexpected and amazing happened one day. Saul actually encountered Jesus. And so instead of persecuting the church and destroying it one person at a time, Saul became Paul and made sure to build the church, equip leaders, and start brand new churches and ultimately help people become followers of Jesus one person at a time. But, like many of us, I imagine, would be, the first church was absolutely skeptical. And can you blame them? In Acts 9.13, we encounter an early church leader by the name of Ananias, who was tasked by God to welcome Saul, the persecutor, into the church. But he didn't want to do it. Lord, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. Translation, God, if, if I've heard the reports of who this man is, haven't you? He hates you. He hates me. Why him? Can't you have me meet someone? I mean, anyone, anyone else. He wants to kill me. Are you serious? I'll love anyone. I mean, anyone but him. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Don't you know what this man is going to do to me? To your church? Are, are, are you sure? Like, I mean, like really sure that you want me to do that. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. Love him. Yes, him. Even him. Especially him. Walk in love. This guy, Ananias, was so afraid to encounter to invest in, would later pin these words to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 5. And I wonder maybe if Paul teared up a little while writing this, thinking of Ananias' investment and willingness to go where God called. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. As we learn to walk in love, we learn we don't get to pick and choose who to love. 
We get to love everyone always. You love whoever God puts in front of you, whenever God puts them in front of you. And now, back to 2 John 9. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Don't run ahead of what God is up to. Instead, walk in love, even when it's uncomfortable, even if it doesn't make any sense at all, even when you'd rather do anything else, don't run, walk in love. And following Jesus demands discernment after we learn to walk in the truth. And 3 John 4 says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Walking in the truth. And so let me get personal here. I know there are some of us in this room right now who are really good at walking in conviction. You'll argue your position as long as anyone is willing to listen to you and maybe beyond. Others of you are probably like me and are really good at walking in love. You're a lover, not a fighter. You love people because they're na you're naturally an extrovert and they give you life, unless you get that bad day working in customer service. But then you hear walk in truth and you immediately, like me, start to feel a bit uneasy. Are you telling me I need to be honest with people? Are you saying I need to tell people when they've hurt me? Are you implying I need to have that tough conversation with a family member, coworker, or friend? And I am and I'm not. See, I'd much rather myself let bygones be bygones, not engage in difficult conversations. I just want people to know that I love them, but sometimes loving people means telling them the truth. For instance, if I were up here right now speaking to you and I had something caught in my teeth, I'd really want you to tell me. And I might have wanted you to tell me like 15 minutes ago, not right now, because that would be love, but it would also be truth. Walking in truth is also just not permission and a license to be mean or constantly get things off your chest. It's not permission to engage in perpetual road rage. This isn't Seinfeld, and I'm not proposing a year-long festivist for the rest of a celebration where we participate in the airing of grievances. What I'm proposing is walking in the truth, the truth of love, the truth of conviction in Jesus. And so that happens to include speaking out on behalf of justice, as it says in Hosea 12.6, maintain love and justice and wait for your God always. It includes speaking out on the truth of Jesus, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. John 14, 6. And speaking the truth of where we've even made mistakes and not made much of Jesus. James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Love and truth always go together. And we must learn as followers of Jesus to use them appropriately. If you were in a car with your Uber driver and they were about to swerve into oncoming traffic, what would you do? Would you let them or would you scream out and try to grab the wheel away from them? Truth matters, even when it's hard to give. We may not want to tell that person we disagree with them because it may be politically incorrect or not Seattle nice. If we love them, truly love them, are we willing to have that hard conversation? The beauty of the truth of God is that it is universally uncomfortable. God's truth is universally uncomfortable. And no matter how long you've been walking and following Jesus, none of us have arrived. We all still have the need for truth to be spoken lovingly into our life. We need to be discerning to figure out what the truth is. 
We don't want to sit with the parts of Jesus that are uncomfortable to us. If we begin to feel the scripture convict us or the Holy Spirit confront us, we tend to run away. Or maybe that's just me. If someone in our community, in your community here at West Seattle, who knows you well, who cares about you, points out an area of your life where you're not living in love, not living as a follower of Jesus, will you listen to them? Will you avoid it because you don't want to walk in the truth? Will you, will I, will Bethany West Seattle live out Proverbs 27, 17 as you seek to walk in the truth? As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Yeah, it may cause friction. It may get uncomfortable, but I bet we'll learn to love a bit better. And part of loving better, part of walking in the truth, is understanding someone can belong before they believe. So let me say that one more time. As I look around and survey the American church, too often we keep a checklist of what keeps someone in or out. We want them to fit us morally or culturally before they ever start following Jesus. But one of the things I'm passionate about is helping the church create a culture where inside the church a not yet follower of Jesus can step in before they ever decide to start following Jesus. I long for a church culture where one can belong before they believe, where they are so well walked alongside with love, they can then choose to believe in the truth of Jesus and follow him. Belong before they believe, because that's what Jesus did for you and for me. And so John 3, 16 through 17 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And that's the truth. God loved you and I before we ever started following Jesus. So that's what we should do. And one day, some religious leaders were trying to trap Jesus, which they did a lot, by asking him of all of God's commandments in the Old Testament, which one of these is the most important? If they were only going to follow one commandment, because that's all they had time for, what one should they follow? And so in Mark 12, Jesus answers their question this way. The most important one, of course, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Love God. Love others. If you don't love others, you don't love God. If you don't love God, you don't love others. And 3 John 11 says it this way. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Walk in truth. And the truth is we are all in need of God's grace and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Romans 3, 24. So following Jesus demands discernment and we must learn to walk in conviction, walk in love, and walk in truth. And so as I prepared this week, and saw the events of the past week, some of them that kind of happened around us, whether it was Charlottesville or Barcelona, I sat in our notion of walking in conviction, love, and truth. 
And I personally myself began to feel convicted. And I began to start thinking that we have neutered what the words truth and love actually mean inside the church. I think we've cheapened these words. We have turned them into checklists, things to accomplish, things to even pat ourselves on the back for and receive some Jesus points for when we do them. But in the reality, these are radical verbs, radical actions we are supposed to take. They are the way we are actually supposed to live. And so I'll call the band back up. And one of the things that I was thinking about, just that the antidote to the neutering of these words that we have done as a culture and as a church, that I think the way to bring back the radicalness is to practice radical hospitality. We need to practice discernment, sensing how God is moving so we can learn to be radically hospitable people. 3 John 8 through 9 says this, Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. Please send them on their way in a manner that honors God. John is advocating here for radical hospitality, and I think this is the best way to put radicalness back in conviction, love, and truth. Simply, will we put our money where our mouths are? And this past week, I was in Chicago, and if you know me or get to know me at all, you'll find out pretty quick that I'm not one who likes to accept freebies or accept people's hospitality. I like to be able to do things on my own without help. And I can have a hard time showing my gratitude when people want to bless me and do things for me. And so as it would be, while I was in Chicago, a friend of a friend, not even my friend, opened up their house to me and let me stay with them for the long weekend. This person had never, ever, ever met me before, but they chose to open up their home and welcome me in. And even while in the midst of being in Chicago, someone found out I was a tourist from Seattle and they even paid for my lunch. It was small, it was simple, it was radical, and it was absolutely hospitable. I felt welcomed and valued, and the crazy thing is it cost this woman $10. So I wonder, where is God calling you to practice radical hospitality this week? Maybe even with whom is God calling you to practice radical hospitality with? And maybe where do you even need help discerning where to become a radically hospitable person? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for just your words of wisdom and encouragement. And we pray that you help us discern where you are calling us and the people that you want us to be and who that one person is to practice hospitality with this week. Amen.